0: God, we come hungry this morning for your word. God, we want this morning to be so much more than just a lesson. God, we don't just want information from your word, but we want to hear from you, the living God through your word. God, we wanna walk out of here changed because you have met with us, because you have spoken clearly by your spirit through your word. So God, be at work. We pray for your help that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine for a moment a number of scenarios. I want you to imagine that you are uh, hosting a little get-together with friends, and in your own personal conscience, you are okay drinking alcohol in moderation but you're wrestling with whether or not to provide alcohol for this little get together, because you know that maybe a friend or two who's coming, uh, their conscience doesn't allow them to drink alcohol. So should you provide alcohol? One should imagine this scenario. Your company at work has just mandated that every employee is to attend the Indie Pride Festival for solidarity with the LGBTQ community. You've been trying to uh, wrestle with this issue related to your own conscience, but you've also been trying to witness to coworkers at work. So should you attend that event? Or how about this scenario? Uh, Your close friend uh, has just confessed to you that they've been struggling uh, with coveting and with discontentment, but your husband has recently purchased maybe some jewelry of some sort for your anniversary. Should you wear that jewelry in front of your friend? What should you do? There there are dozens of these kinds of scenarios. I could go on and on and on. Should you watch R-rated movies? Should you smoke cigarettes? Should you read Harry Potter novels? Should you get a tattoo? Should you go trick-or-treating? Should you root for Tom Brady? That's an easy one, right? That's an easy one. We'll leave that off the table. But if so, should you do those things with others who have a weak conscience. Weak conscience meaning not that they're inferior spiritually or less of a Christian, just means that their conscience is more restrictive and more sensitive to issues that the Bible does not forbid. So if your conscience leads you to doing those things, should you do them around those with a weak conscience? Like these are not easy matters. These are, these are difficult situations and issues to wrestle through, which is why... 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 has been so very helpful. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to finish what he began in chapter eight, but this morning he's going to be very, very practical, giving us some helpful principles as he kind of lands the plane. Paul has now finished the argument with the Corinthians on whether or not they should attend these pagan temple meals, but some loose ends still need to be tied together. Eating sacrificial food at the temple meals is forbidden as we looked at last week because it was directly connected to overt idolatrous activity. But now the question is, can the Corinthians eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols but is now sold in the public marketplace? Or can they eat the meat that's placed before them when they attend a friend's house? And in answering these questions, Paul provides four practical principles for how we ought to think about our Christian liberty, our Christian freedom, and the role of the conscience. But let me be clear this morning, and I've tried to emphasize this almost every single week. The issue in considering Christian liberty and the role of the conscience, the issue is so much more about the condition of your heart than about being right or about being wrong. The issue related to maybe these issues in the gray is so much more about what's underneath the surface that's driving your decision-making than about who is right and who is wrong. And that's always the case in matters of the conscience, always the case in matters of Christian liberty, that your maturity level spiritually is revealed in how you handle these kinds of topics. And oftentimes it really comes down to this question. Do you want to edify and love the people around you that you are in community with? Do you want to edify them more than being right, than exercising a particular freedom that you have in the Christian life? Usually it comes down to that question. See, the Corinthians here, they prioritize knowledge, they prioritize their own personal liberties and freedoms, but it led them to pride and selfishness. But Paul wants them to prioritize love and biblical freedom that leads to edification. That's where Paul is moving the Corinthians. In fact, the way that Paul has been, what he's been trying to do, is he's been trying, if you can read this, he's been trying to move both sides of the spectrum towards the center there. And it's interesting, when you think about matters of the conscience and matters of Christian liberty There's always nuance. There's never just the strong and there's never just the weak. In fact, this is a chart by, uh, by Nine Marks that posted this a few years ago about this passage. There are seven really different positions made up of in this church at Corinth just with this issue alone. And if you can read this, if you look at the far two, you can't really see this laser maybe, but the far two here, if you look at the weak conscience, they're dealing with legalism here And as they move closer, they're also dealing with judgmentalism. But if you move over to the left here, the strong in conscience, which means the strong in conscience, they've got more freedom within the Christian life where the Bible doesn't outright forbid something. But the strong in conscience, if you look at the far left there, they're wrestling with idolatry. There are some at this church who were going to these temple worship services, eating meat, but they were engaging in idolatry. But then if you move one to the right there, the strong in conscience, they still eat meat and they may not be attending these temple worship services, but they're looking down on the weak who are not eating the meat and they're wrestling with and struggling with arrogance. And so there are issues on both sides and Paul is trying to move them to the center where where both people are flexible. They can eat meat, or they're willing to give up the meat depending on who they are with and depending on the context that they are in. And to get to that place, you have to be motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's being motivated by a love for others. And so the question I want us to wrestle with is, how do we get to the middle there? How do we get to that center column no matter what the issue is. And of course, for us, it may not be meat. It might be one of those other issues that I listed or something that you're wrestling with. And I think the way that Paul moves the Corinthians, how he's going to help us this morning, is he's gonna provide these four practical principles. So let's look at these four principles. We're gonna start in verse 23. The first principle is to prioritize edification over gratification. If you look at verse 23, uh, this should sound familiar. Just like in chapter six, verse 12, that section on sexual immorality, Paul here is quoting one of the Corinthians' popular slogans, but he's adding his own qualifiers to it. He's saying, all things are lawful, or it could be translated, everything is permissible, but Paul says, not all things are helpful, or could be translated as beneficial. And then he says it again. He says, all things are lawful, meaning you are free to do anything that the scriptures do not forbid. But his qualifier here is not all things build up or could be translated as not all things are edifying. See, if you notice here, just in this verse, in this principle, the question is not, am I allowed to do X? That's no longer the question. The question is not, do I have a right to do this? Or am I free to do this? And if I am free, if I do have a right, then I'm gonna do it. That's no longer the question. The question that Paul is putting on the table for us that should dictate how we use our Christian liberties in the Christian life is, will this edify the people around me? Again, this has been Paul's theme throughout these chapters. As he's trying to kind of coach the Corinthians, he's trying to help them in terms of their Christian liberty. It's not who is right and who is wrong. It's will this love and build up and push people closer to Jesus or not. Now this word here to build up or the word edification is a really important word. This this phrase here literally means to build a house. Now, Paul obviously here is using it metaphorically to mean to to spiritually build up somebody. And that's the issue. It really comes down to making sure that everything I do, everything that you do, it's for the end goal of building somebody up in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that wasn't happening at the church in Corinth. There were those who were strong in conscience who thought to themselves, I can eat the meat and they were using their liberty to gratify themselves instead of to edify and build up those who were weak in conscience. And as a result, they were putting this stumbling block and drawing the weak back into idolatry. But Paul here is saying, I think in verse 23, is that edification must trump personal gratification in determining our Christian liberty use. So you ask the question, Do I have a right to do this? And if yes, then you ask the question, will this build me up? Will this build up those around me? If you answer no to either of those questions, then you don't do it. But if yes to both, then you can do it. This is a very practical principle, very practical guideline, but it is nonetheless very challenging. And I think the challenge is for us as we think about these issues is that so often we don't go deep enough we, we oftentimes stop at asking the question, will this offend somebody? Will the, and, and that's really put in the negative. If this offends somebody, if this upsets somebody, then I won't do it. That's not deep enough. We have to go a step deeper and ask the question, will this action, will this behavior, will, will this decision, will this edify the person next to me? Will this build them up? See, that's put in the positive and that changes the whole conversation. It's no longer about who's right and who's wrong. Now we're talking about spiritual growth. Now we're talking about pushing people closer to Jesus Christ and building them up spiritually. So edification over gratification. The second principle in verse 24 is others over Self. This is more specific than the first principle, because when it comes down to choosing between what will build me up or build the person up next to me, I choose this person every time. If you look at verse 24, he says, Let no one seek what? His own good, but the good of his neighbor. Okay, this is very simple. Like when you have a choice to make, you could choose this or that. And you choose the one that doesn't violate your conscience. That's a good start. But then if, you, if you're considering choosing this decision right here, this will build me up, but it won't build up this person, then you don't do it. And that's really the principle of love within the Christian life. And if you think about it, like we wanna do things that, that are always spiritually edifying both yourself and the people around you. But if it doesn't build this person up, then you don't do it. And guess what? That will actually benefit you in the long run because you giving up your freedom and your liberty in a particular area out of love for your neighbor, that will actually end up building you up because love does what? Love, according to 1 Corinthians 8.1, builds up as opposed to knowledge that puffs up And so you sacrificing your liberty for the love and the sake of someone else will actually lead to edifying you and the person next to you. So every Christian in his liberty should be guided by the principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, look, I understand that this topic of giving up your Christian freedom and your liberty might strike a deep chord in some of us where we are... Americans who value our freedom, we value our liberty to not be forced to give up something that you are free to do. That's very hard for us in thinking through being Americans. But this is why it is important that we elevate our Christian identity above our American identity. I love this country. I love being an American, but we must process our American identity through the lens of being a Christian first and foremost, that we understand our freedoms in the Christian life, not talking about American freedoms, our, our, our Christian freedoms through the lens of the gospel because the gospel calls us to die to self. The gospel calls us to sacrificially love others and be willing to give up things and freedoms in the Christian life for the sake of building others up, not trying to experience as much freedom as possible for what's good for me. Philippians 2 presses this in. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." Look, this principle is so helpful because I think it gets underneath the whole discussion here. This principle undergirds how we ought to use our Christian liberty and our Christian freedoms because true freedom is not doing whatever you want to do or doing whatever you have a right to do. That's not true freedom. True freedom biblically is being so content in Jesus, so satisfied in Jesus, so secure in Jesus that you are willing to give up any rights in the Christian life for the sake of building others up and being fine with it because you have Jesus. So look, here's the question for us this morning because this is so foundational to Christian freedoms. I wanna ask you, when was the last time that you actually did that? When was the last time, specifically, that you gave up a right or a freedom in the Christian life for the sake of edifying and building somebody up? Right now, if you're struggling to think of something or think of something specifically, let's ask another question. What does that reveal? if you're struggling to think back, man, I, I don't know if I've ever done that, or, or maybe it's been a while, could that reveal that you love yourself, that you love your freedoms, that you love your rights in the Christian life more than edifying the people around you? Because look, we have these opportunities all of the time. And I think so often we want to hide, more we're people of the word, But sometimes we hide behind this statement where we say the Bible doesn't forbid it, so I'm gonna do it. I'm free to do this. And and that's where we stop. And yet Paul is challenging us to go a step deeper and ask the question, will this edify the people around you? And if not, then we ought to be people of the word, of Philippians 2, of being willing to give up that liberty, if it's not building up and edifying the people around us. Others over self, following the example of Jesus. All right, now principle number three. This is where it gets complicated, all right? Principle three is liberty over legalism. Liberty over legalism. Paul now begins to address the specific issue of whether or not it is okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, but is now sold in the marketplace. All right, this would be similar to maybe restaurants for us today. And I want you to notice what Paul is doing here. This is absolutely brilliant because after reading verses 23 and 24, these first two principles, we would expect Paul to provide an example and an illustration in verses 25 and 26 of being willing to restrain our Christian liberty and our freedom, right? Like after talking about edifying others, being others focused, we would anticipate giving a situation where we need to give up our liberty, but that's not what Paul does at all. In fact, in this scenario, Paul is encouraging us to enjoy personal liberty. What's Paul doing here? Paul is intentionally, he intentionally began this section with a focus on love for others, being others focused, so that we can interpret and process this principle in verse 25 through that lens, rather than the lens of being self-centered and self-gratifying. All right, now Paul is very clear here though with this principle, he tells the Corinthians, you can eat anything that's sold in the meat market without raising questions of the conscience. he's encouraging, enjoy your freedom. And in regards to your personal life, do not allow other people to judge that. Now, this would have been jarring for the Jewish Christians in the church at Corinth here. Uh, For the Jewish Christians here, they, they were operating still under this Old Testament dietary laws where they were really required to investigate where the food came from when they're in the marketplace. This was known commonly in this community where the Jewish believers are gonna be asking some questions. Where did this meat come from? What's the source of this? Was this sacrifice to an idol? And yet Paul says, not only do not conduct an investigation, but he says for them to enjoy the, the food here, buy and eat this without letting it be an issue. Paul says, this is not grounds for your conscience. This is not a conscience issue. And he grounds that in verse 26, where he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, meaning the meat has been provided by the Lord. Give thanks to God for it and eat it and enjoy it. Paul says something similar in First Timothy 4. It says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Paul says here, Go and enjoy the meat. Now, why? What is Paul doing here in these verses? I think what Paul is doing is he is encouraging us to prioritize liberty over legalism. All right, remember Galatians 5.1, Paul says, for freedom, Christ has made us free. Now, what's interesting is in Galatians 2, just a few chapters before that, he talks about how there were Judaizers who chapter two, verse four, they try to spy out our liberty or freedom, but we wouldn't let them. It's exactly what he says, chapter two, verse four. Paul is encouraging us, enjoy your liberty, avoid legalism for where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul is providing a safeguard against legalism, which those who are weak in conscience were very prone to commit Now, legalism creates rules detached from clear biblical principles with the motivation of trying to appear and look more religious and more spiritual. All right, that's what legalism is. It takes these extra biblical rules that aren't in the word of God And they try to to follow these rules in order to promote their own spiritual performance to earn God's favor. That's the motivation. It's not a motivation out of godly wisdom because let's face it, sometimes we do need extra boundaries in the Christian life depending on our weaknesses, depending on our history. But legalism is living by religious bondage that operates in the relationship with God in this checklist mentality. I do, I don't do, I do, I don't do, with the intent of trying to earn God's acceptance and love and favor based on your own performance. And look, that stands in direct contrast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel does not say you do or you don't do and you earn favor. The gospel says you can't, but Jesus did. And legalism promotes this personal performance, but it squashes grace. It promotes the earning and the keeping of God's favor based on what I do or don't do, but the gospel declares something different. The gospel declares that Jesus in his perfect righteousness has earned God's approval and favor and acceptance already. And when you place your faith upon Jesus and turn from your sins, you get all of God's acceptance, all of God's love because you are hidden in Jesus. And for those who are weak in conscience, when they embrace the gospel, they can actually grow out of legalism let me give you an example. And this may or may not be helpful, but let's say that you are um, going to a friend's house and maybe personally, you, your own conscience doesn't allow you to drink alcohol, but your friends are making a meal for you. Maybe it's a nice meal. The principle here would be not to stop them and to ask them, hey, are you cooking this meal and wine right now? That, that's, that's not the application here. The application is just eat the meat. Just eat the meal here. Enjoy that freedom that you have in Christ and avoid legalism, all right? And you can apply that to any situation that you might be going through, all right? We prioritize liberty over legalism. Now, I wanna stop for a moment and I want us to consider the very important question of how do the strong in conscience, how are they to interact with the weak in conscience, right? This is important because in the Christian life, you will always be a strong in conscience or a weak in conscience, no matter who you're talking with. There's always somebody who's stronger than you. There's always someone who's on the other side on the weaker than you. And so wrestling with this question, you will find yourself both being the weak and the strong in different scenarios. And this question is so important because really you're kind of putting these first three principles together. All right, now let's maybe start this question, start to answer this question. And I want to remind us that the issue between the strong and the weak is not about avoiding offending somebody. Okay, that, that, is, a, that is a common misperception about issues of the conscience. It is, it is not enough in justifying giving up your freedom if the weakened conscience is annoyed at the strong in conscience's freedom, all right? Sometimes you'll hear that. Well, it, they're, they're kind of they're, they're offended by, by this liberty that I have here, so I'm not gonna do it. That's not enough. The principle that Paul has laid out here is leading the weakened conscience to actually sinning. That's the issue here. Because operating out of the sense of offending somebody or, or this person is annoyed at your freedom that person will weaponize their weakened conscience and start to control others. You, you will allow your freedom to be dictated by someone else's conscience in their offense. But the issue here is actually leading them back into sin. So the principle for the strong and the weak, you should not create a stumbling block for the weak. But I would say at the same time, we certainly do not want to allow the weakened conscience to remain weak their whole lifetime and therefore kind of pulling the strong down to their level, all right? Because again, I think the weak, and I know people who are weak in conscience, they will weaponize these verses in order to control others. So there's a tension here. So what do we do? The strong in conscience, my encouragement, would be to restrict your liberty, be willing to give up that particular freedom and then in community and out of love and out of humility, come alongside that weak brother or sister in conscience and lovingly explain why you gave up your freedom and and to have a, a humble conversation about that topic with the word of God, to make sure that your consciences are aligned with the scriptures. And sometimes that will happen, sometimes it won't. But being in community, we take it to the word of God and in humility, we have a conversation about that. And look, sometimes that will lead the weak to to moving towards the strong. Maybe the strong will be moving towards the weak. And other times, maybe it won't move them at all. And nevertheless, when you're having a conversation in humility about issues that you may not agree with and you're allowing the word of God and the spirit of God to drive that conversation I would encourage also that there be no judging each other spiritually. That There's no kind of passing the sense of where you're less spiritual or you're more a spiritual person because of that position. You avoid judging. You continue to welcome each other and fellowship with one another. And at the end of the day, you keep the plain things, the main things, where you, you continue to prioritize the unity that you have in Jesus as you continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But in issues of liberty, in issues of the conscience, we have to strive to maintain the unity that's been created by Jesus Christ. Now, the last principle here I wanna point out, the fourth one, is gospel over liberty, verses 27 through 30. All right, here Paul addresses another kind of meat-eating opportunity, And in this situation, Paul takes the principles in verses 23 and 24, edify others, be others focused, and explains what we are to do when those principles collide with the principle found in verse 25. In other words, here's a situation where perhaps you would limit your freedom for the sake of somebody else who is not even a Christian. Okay, this is a very nuanced situation, but let me unpack this, verses 27 through 30. This is a situation that occurs in the home. Okay, here's the scenario. An unbeliever invites a Christian over for dinner. Now, this Christian is almost certainly one who has a strong conscience. In this time period, in this setting, those with a weak conscience would never have accepted the invitation. So this is a person who has a strong conscience. And Paul says, look, if the meat is put before you, don't ask any questions. Eat it, give thanks to God, and enjoy it, okay? But verse 28, here's the variable. Paul says, if someone is there, and this is, per, this is a person who's not the host, and this is a person who is almost certainly, again, an unbeliever, because again, the weakened conscience believer would not attend this scenario. But this unbeliever is trying to perhaps help out the Christian, tells the Christian there, hey, this meat has been offered to a pagan idol. Okay, that's probably the scenario here that Paul's outlining. And Paul says, in that situation, Paul says, do not eat the meat for the sake of the unbeliever and his conscience. Now, why? Why would Paul be encouraging that? It's because of the gospel. We are to allow the gospel to trump our own personal liberty and our personal freedom because eating the meat in the unbeliever's mind here, eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol was inconsistent for what it meant to be a Christian. For the unbeliever in their conscience, eating the meat could endorse the idol's existence and therefore create a stumbling block for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says therefore, do not eat it. This is why in verse 33, Paul says he's trying to please everyone so that they may be saved. Right? So we we restrict our liberty when the gospel is at stake or when we're putting our liberty as a stumbling block for someone to come to faith in Jesus. We are willing to give that And I'm sure you can apply that principle to numerous situations in your life. Now, the second half of verse 29 and 30, this might help you kind of understand what he's talking about here. Those verses are actually explaining verse 27, all right? He kind of has a tangent there in verse 28, and then he comes back and he tries to explain verse 27. Paul says, unless the food is explicitly declared as having been offered to an idol, then your freedom to eat the meat should not be restricted by another's conscience, especially when you are giving thanks for it to God. What Paul most likely has in mind here is someone who is eating meat that, and they're kind of unsure. I'm not sure, was this sacrifice to an idol? I don't really know. Paul says, look, unless you know for sure, go ahead and eat it and enjoy it, all right? These are four very helpful, I think, principles as we think about living out our Christian liberty, our Christian freedom. And just to summarize these things, just to put all of these principles together, um, here are some steps. I showed this week one. I wanna come back to this. This is by Vaughn Roberts. These are really helpful questions to ask when you're dealing with the conscience and matters of Christian liberty. The first question here is, does the Bible allow it? Right? We always start with the word of God, where God has spoken, clearly we obey it. I think another good question maybe, is there a biblical principle that might guide or inform the best decision? Right? We always allow the Bible to be authoritative. But then the second question, if, he, well, if no, then don't do it. But if yes, ask the question, does my conscience allow it? Right? We talked the first couple of weeks about if your conscience is leading you to do something, you obey your conscience every time. All right, if no, don't do it. If yes, then we're kind of in matters of Christian liberty. And these three questions are really from this passage. The first question, what's the impact on other Christians around me? Will it edify them? If no, then don't do it. If yes, then do it. All right, the next question, what's the impact on non-Christians? Again, we want to prioritize the gospel over personal liberty. And then the last question, what's the impact on my own soul? Would this really build me up and benefit me spiritually? Again, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Right, those are really helpful principles, I think, from this passage. Now, Paul doesn't end there, though. Paul continues, after laying out these helpful and practical principles, he now shows us the purpose for our personal uh, liberties in the Lord. And if you look at verse 32, Paul says, we are not to give an offense. And this is meaning a stumbling block, okay? We are not to cause a stumbling block for believers or unbelievers in how we live. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do it by living out verse 31. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is one of the most common verses in the Christian life. But did you know it's couched within this topic of Christian liberty? Does that maybe change the optics of, of what this verse actually is talking about? Nevertheless, this, this verse is so instructive for us in understanding why God gives us Christian liberty and Christian freedom. We live for the glory of God in all matters of life. See, love for others, edifying others with our Christian liberty it is a great principle to follow. But here, the glory of God, realizing that life is not about me. Life is about glorifying God is one of the strongest things that we have in this life to pull us out of living a self-centered life that we live to make him great. And I think what this means practically is we live our lives in order to put on display the supreme worth and beauty of God. We live in such a way that the people around us are looking at us and they're saying, wow, God is the greatest treasure in your life. That you so enjoy God, you so obey his word that it actually draws people closer to God because they're seeing a life that's living for someone bigger than themselves. They're not living for their own selfishness. I love this verse because Paul says, you can do this in all matters of life, eating, or drinking, no matter what you do, you live for the glory of God. As you pay the bills, as you change diapers, as you do the dishes, as you prepare for that work meeting, as you have conversations with your friends, as you work out, you fill in the blank. We are to live for the glory of God, including using and exercising our Christian freedoms and our rights. Can you, can you imagine what a difference it would make in how we live out the gospel if we just stopped for a moment before saying something, before thinking something, before doing something, and we asked the question, will this bring glory to God or not? That is so practical and so convicting, but we are to exercise our liberty for the glory of God and who he is. And then finally, chapter 11, verse one, I think Paul provides a pattern for us to follow. Paul says, do what I do because what I'm doing is what Jesus did perfectly. All right, this, I think the true emphasis here is not on Paul, but it's on Jesus. Paul is almost redeeming that that cliche, what would Jesus do? And he's basically asking us to ask the question, what has Jesus already done? Right, when we ask that question, we remember that Jesus is the one who perfectly lived out all four of these principles. Jesus is the one who had unlimited rights, unlimited freedoms, and yet was willing to give up all of those to come to the earth and to die for sinners. That Jesus is the one who gave up all of those things in order to build up and to love us. And he stooped so low as to get up on a cross and die in the place of sinners. He did that in order to make us who are guilty and to make us righteous and accepted before a holy God. And look, I said this a few weeks ago, but I think this is a challenging thought. Can you imagine if Jesus treated his rights and freedoms in the same way that some of us treat our rights and freedoms? If Jesus up in heaven said, no, 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 I'm right to do this. I'm gonna stay up here. This is more comfortable. I'm free to do this. If Jesus did that, we would all be condemned. And yet Jesus has laid out before us a perfect example for us to follow in his footsteps of dying to ourselves, being willing to give up our freedoms for the sake of others. Look, I wonder if there are some who are here today and you are holding on to your freedoms, you are holding on to being right with this tight grip, this white knuckle grip, and you're saying to yourself, I'm not gonna give this up because I'm right. And if you have that type of position this morning, can I just remind you that the only thing that is powerful enough for you to release that grip is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that reminding yourself of all that Jesus has done for you, of the grace that is found in Jesus. That's the only thing that will lead you to living your life open-handedly with your freedoms for the sake of other Christians. That look, you do not need to be right every time because you have been made right eternally in Jesus. You do not need to get your own way every time because Jesus made a way for you to be eternally forgiven and accepted before God. You do not need to demand your freedoms because Jesus has made you free from the bondage of sin and guilt and shame forever. And look, when you live under the banner of it is finished, of what Jesus did for you on the cross, you are free to live for those around you. Like everything that we need, we already possess in Jesus. Look, we've covered a lot of ground in these couple of chapters. I hope it's been helpful, but I wanna close this morning and I wanna just do a time of of reflection. I think these are maybe three questions for you and I to wrestle with this morning before we sing this last song. Just want you to, to think through these questions, maybe even write them down. You can think through them for the rest of the week, but I want you to take the next couple of minutes Just between you and the Lord, I want you to think through these questions and just ask the Lord to help you take a step in better faithfully living out this passage. Let me pray for our time to do that right now. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how helpful it is. God, we thank you that it is, um, Lord, instructive. It is able to correct us and rebuke us and reprove us. God, we thank you that it gives guidance. And I pray for this moment now, God, that you give us open hearts, that you would move freely, In this place, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.